everyone as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus. And this week we're going to be studying two Torah portions which normally don't go together, Torah portion Emor and Bahar. Now most years Bahar goes with the last Torah portion of Leviticus, which is Bechukotai, but we are in one of those leap years where we separate the Torah portions out. But the reason that I'm doing Emor and Bahar together is because Last week, we had a special corporate service at Beth Kuhn, so I did not do a teaching on Bahar, or I'm sorry, on Imor. But there's so much important material here that I just couldn't um, see myself skipping over it. So I'm combining it with this week's portion, Bahar. And uh, before we get into that, I want to share with you a quandary that I've often found myself in. And um, I wasn't quite sure how to counsel other people in this predicament as well. Um, and, and the predicament arises from this. The scriptures give us some very specific reasons why some people we should not associate with. Uh, for example, this is one that we've taught on in the past. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul writes, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, someone who claims to be a believer a member of the family of God, if he is guilty of, first of all, sexual immorality, B, greed, C, is an idolater, D, a reviler, E, drunkard, or F, a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, he's not talking about someone who is a brother who generally is moving in the right direction, who stumbles, they goof up, they repent and get back on track. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone where these are strongholds, these earmark their character. And he's saying not to associate with them, not even to eat with them. And this is the list that we as elders at Beth Kuhn will consult when there's an individual that arises in the community that seems to be dangerous. We're trying to decide, is this someone we disassociate with, or is it just something where they need some counsel to help them get their lives back in alignment? Here's, a, here's another passage. In 2 John, it's only one chapter, but verses 9 through 11. Now remember, John is considered the apostle of love. Some people I've met just like, well, Paul you take with a grain of salt because he's pretty fiery. But this is John. This is the apostle of love, whose message is always, always love. And listen to what he says. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Messiah does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. But if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, this is talking about someone, not who's fallen into the sins in the previous passage. This is someone who has turned their back on Messiah, who claimed to be a Messiah follower, but then says, nah, I'm not following anymore. I don't believe he's the Messiah anymore. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm done with him. And I've met some people like this. So here's the quandary. Quandary is... What if such a person is your sibling 
or your son or daughter or a parent, someone who's very, very close to you, how do you completely disassociate with such a one? Because family ties have connected you and thrown you together in such a way that disconnecting is difficult, if not impossible. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think the beginning of our passage in Emor, in uh, Leviticus chapter 21, addresses this. And it's given me some guidance so you can decide if you think this applies or not. This is what it says, Leviticus 21, starting with verse 1. Adonai said to Moses, Say to the Kohanim, the priest, the sons of Aaron, and tell them, Each of you shall not contaminate himself to a person among his people. It's referring to a dead person. Now, remember that the greatest source of ritual impurity in the Torah is a dead body. And uh, it's considered a great mitzvah to attend a dead person and see to their proper burial, to wash the body, prepare the body for burial. By doing so, you make yourself ritually impure, but it's a great commandment to do that anyway. Remember, it's not sin. It's, it's referring to ritual impurity. And then you go through the process of purifying yourself, and you're, you're back in with the community. But it says to a priest, to a Kohen, you are not to touch a dead body at all, with these exceptions. Verse 2, except for the relative who is closest to him, to his mother, and to his father, to his son, to his daughter, and to his brother, and to his virgin sister who is close to him, who has not been used or wed to a man. To her shall he contaminate himself. A husband among his people shall not contaminate himself to one who desecrates him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we see here, and often, God includes exceptions to commandments. Um, and this is one of them. So a priest, because of his role in the, uh, the community of Israel, because he serves in the tabernacle, the temple, and at the altar, he is not to contaminate himself under any conditions except for these. A father or mother, a son or a daughter, a brother or an unmarried sister. And maybe I'm taking it too far, but you decide that for yourself. But I think in the passages we've looked at in 1 Corinthians and here in 2 John, when it talks about disassociating with someone who's completely overcoming a sin, who's rebelled against God, who's denied Messiah, I think we need to follow the advice, uh, the commandment that is given to us through Paul and through John. But maybe there's an exception if it's a mom or a dad, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter. Because I think with them, there's still a connection. They can lose all the other connections. But I think this is a connection that needs to be preserved so that we can continue to be a light to them, a source of love and hope to them. So again, you decide. I don't want to, to steer you wrong and give you wrong counsel, but to me, this fits. Because I think everything in the Torah, every principle here, is good for our, um, for our teaching, for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness, 
And though there's no literal Levitical priesthood today, I think these principles can still apply to us. And I believe this is one of the ways that they do that. Now let's continue in chapter 21, and let's go on down to verse 16. And I think I can speak for all of us that when we read this for the first time, it's a bit shocking and troubling. This is what it says. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, Any man of your offspring throughout their generations in whom there will be a blemish shall not come near to offer the food of God, food of his God. For any man in whom there is a blemish shall not approach. A man who is blind or lame or is, now, it says, whose nose has no bridge. We're not quite sure how to translate that, but has a mutilated face, has a mutilation somehow in his face, but it seems to be attached to the nose in particular, or who has one limb longer than the other, or in whom there will be a broken uh, foot or a broken hand, a dwarf or hunchback, or a blemish in his eye. It's actually a confusion of the eyes. It would seem to be cross-eyed, or a dry skin eruption, you know, so like eczema, or a moist skin eruption, or has crushed testicles, any man from among the offspring of Aaron the Kohen who has a blemish shall not approach to offer the fire offerings of Adonai. He has a blemish. The food of his God he shall not approach to offer. The food of his God from the most holy and from the holy may he eat, but he shall not come to the curtain. He shall not approach the altar, for he has a blemish. And when you read this, you think, wow, you know, God doesn't like people who have imperfections, physical imperfections, blemishes, or handicaps. And that's not the case at all. And once again, we must remember that all of the teachings of Torah are profitable for our teaching and for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness. So we have to ask the question, how does this apply to us? How does it apply to me. Now, you may think, well, it doesn't apply to me at all because I'm not a Cohen. I am not a descendant of Aaron. I am not even a Levite. I'm not even Jewish. It has no application to me. Actually, it does. You've heard my contention before that I don't see any religious jargon used in the scriptures. I just don't see it. Uh, if it's there, I haven't discovered it yet. Unless it's the name or the word God itself. If you want to make that a religious term, then okay. But I don't even see the name of God or the word God, El or Elohim, as being a religious term. It's a statement of our Creator. It's, a, it's who He is. But how about the word priest? Is that a religious word or is that part of the common vernacular? Well, Almost all the time you see the word priest in Scripture. It's referring to either a pagan priest or uh, to one of the Levitical priests. But not always. Here's an exception. Here's an example. Second Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 8.18. It says, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Now here's the, the important part for our discussion. And David's sons were Kohanim. 
your translation probably says, and David's sons were priests, but they weren't priests. Only descendants of the tribe of Levi through Aaron himself were priests. David was from the tribe of Judah. His sons were not priests, period. So how do we explain this? You have to go back to what the word Kohen really means. And though, as I said, it usually refers to a priest, a Levitical priest, that's not the source of the word. That's not the root of the word. If you have a copy of the Reuben edition of the Prophets, these are published by Art Scroll Publishers. They're a beautiful set. And they go through the, the Prophets and the writings, and they have separate volumes for each of the books. If you read the commentary on this verse, this is what it says. The word Kohen refers to, quote, one who serves, unquote. In its most common usage, it refers to a Kohen who performs a temple service, but it is also used properly, as in this case, for one who serves the government. And if you read more into this and the discussion and to other um, books that comment on the word Kohen, what it means really is this. It means to serve by leading, to serve by leading. Now, it's possible to serve without being in any kind of a leadership role. That's wonderful. It's also possible to lead without really serving the people you're leading, and that's horrible. But to be a true Kohen, according to the original and root definition of the word, means to serve by leading. Your leadership is service to those you're leading. This is why we can truly say, as fathers, we are to be priests of the home, kohanim of the home. We're not priests, literally, but we should serve our family, serve our wife by leading. And everything we do to lead should be for their good, for their service, not to lord it over them. And in fact, in Revelation, we are called a kingdom of priests or kings and priests, depending on how you translate the verse. So we're not Levitical priests, but we can certainly serve through leadership. And this is one example. This is one of the most stark examples of how this word can be used. But it really means to serve. Now, when we look at this, and we, we think of what a Kohen is in these terms, then this list of disqualifying blemishes can apply to us in our service of leadership, but not physically. Remember, God's word is spiritual, and we need to understand and interpolate from this what are the spiritual principles that lie behind these blemishes. Because certainly I'm not physically perfect, and I don't know of anyone who is. There are very few people I know of who would fit these descriptions physically perfectly. But um, I think we can reach them spiritually. But it might take some work and some real correction in our lives. So let's take them one by one. It's been a few years since I've gone over these before, and I think it's, it's well worth reviewing. I know as I was reviewing them this week, they just came alive to me again, and so I'm excited to share them with you. So there are 12 disqualifying or prohibitive 
blemishes. So let's take them one at a time. The first one we come to is the word for blind. First one is blind. Iver is the word in Hebrew. And Iver simply means what it says. You're blind. You can't see. And how does a blind person live? Uh, if they're in a, a room, and you can do this experiment yourself if you need to, um, go into a place you're not familiar with, or even if you are, turn out all the lights, close the blinds so it's totally dark, or put a blindfold on and see how well you do navigating the furniture and the things in that room. What's going to happen as soon as the lights go out, your hands are going to go up. You're going to start living now by your feelings. And people who are spiritually blind live by their emotions. That's the way it is. If we have spiritual light, if we can see spiritually, we can put our emotions down. Just as if you can see physically, you can put your hands down. I don't need to feel my way through a room. If I can see spiritually, I don't have to feel my way through life. And so, a person who lives by their emotions is spiritually blind. A person who lives by their emotions, emotions cannot uh, serve in leadership because they're going to make the wrong decisions. They don't see things as they are. They see things as they are. They see things through their own emotions. Learning how to quiet the emotions is a powerful Musar trait, a powerful discipline. And this is why generally the older a person gets, their emotional, the emotional um, dictatorship in their own soul should die away to where they can think more clear-headedly. I know as I get older, there's pretty much not anything I haven't been through already, and I don't get worked up as easy. Uh, whereas a child is shocked and emotional about every little thing that happens. So as we get older, those emotions should quiet down. They're given there for us to enjoy, and the emotions are given to us to connect with others, to weep with those who weep, to, to laugh and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But they are never given to us to lead us. We should never be led by emotion. It'll lead us wrong every time. And of course, the most caustic and dangerous of all emotions is anger. So, blindness is not something that can be tolerated uh, if we want to be in leadership or are in leadership. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith, is what we're told. And I'll give you some passages as we go through here. And you'll find all of these in the notes as well. But 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And I also think of 2 Corinthians 6, the story of Elijah and the, um, and the servant. Elijah's servant could see all the armies coming, <laughs> surrounding them. Elijah, he just didn't even raise an eyebrow at it. And his servant's getting all emotional and frightened and and so Elijah simply says, um, he says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, Oh, Adonai, please open his eyes that he may see. So Adonai opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. 
So they were always there, but the young man couldn't see them. And maybe his emotions and his fear were one of the things that, that blinded him to the reality. The next thing is that he cannot be lame. And what's interesting is the word here for lame is the word Pesach, the same word that means Passover. Um, the word Pesach kind of means to stumble, to trip, to jump, to, to have like an erratic pace. And this is why Pesach is called Pesach, because God says, I will Pesach over you, I will pass over you. I'm walking through and I'm bringing death to the firstborn. I see that house, I just take a little leap, a little stumble over that house, I don't go in there. So the lame person, the person who's spiritually lame, cannot serve in leadership. What does it mean to be spiritual lame? It means he walks, uh, a person who's not lame walks without stumbling. He can uh, stand reliably, but a person who's stumbling, a person who is unreliable in his stand and walk with God, should not be put in leadership yet. He should wait. You know, a child, when they're first born, can't move or roll or do anything at all. Then they can start rolling. Then they can start crawling. And then they can start standing, but not very well. Then they might take a tentative step while they're holding on to something. And when they start walking, they fall down all the time. But hopefully, by the time you uh, get a few years under your belt, you can walk across a room without falling on your face or on your behind. Spiritually, the same is true. We have to learn how to crawl and then to stand and then to walk with assistance and then to walk alone and then to walk alone without stumbling. And this is a skill that's developed. And those who would serve in leadership have to be people who are not prone to stumbling. They're stable. And then the next one says a disfigurement, but it has something that has to do especially with the nose. We know that. Um, the word here is interesting. It's the word haram, haram. And it, when this is pronounced harem, it means to, to segregate, to distinguish. Um, you find this word a number of times in the book of Joshua and elsewhere where people had to be able to discern between something that is okay and something that's not. For example, in Exodus 22:20. 20, we read, whoever sacrifices to any god other than Adonai alone shall be segregated, cherem, to destruction, set apart for destruction. Usually when we see set apart, it's the word kadosh, which we translate holy most of the time. But this is set apart, cherem, for destruction. We have to make a distinction, people who sacrifice to God, but those who sacrifice to other gods and to idols. They have to be set apart. But here's another one that's more interesting and, and more applicable, and, and that is in uh, Joshua 6.18. But you, keep yourselves from the things cherem, segregated. Um, your translation may say devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Remember the story of Achan who took some uh, garment and some uh, silver and gold from Jericho and hid it under his tent? 
These items are called cherem. You were to segregate, distinguish, and not take those things. But he did. And as a result, it brought disaster to the people of Israel. But when God finally revealed who it was, they had to take, take Achan, and take a, whose name means trouble, take him out of the camp and execute him. So, what does it have to do with the nose? Well, where's the nose located? I mean, the senses, I have two ears, one each side of my head. I have uh, two eyes, one on each side of my nose. I have one mouth and the nostrils. But the nose is what separates the face. It's the part that's like a, a dividing line between the left and the half side of the face. Now, if I look to the left, I can see the outline of my nose. If I look all the way to the right, I can see the outline of my nose. My nose separates what my left eye sees and my right eye sees. So, it's saying here that the nose cannot be deformed, it cannot be broken, it cannot be off to one side, because it's almost like the nose where the spiritual sensitivities are. The nose and smell always represent the spiritual in fact, the word for smell and the word for spirit are almost exactly the same. Reach for uh, smell, ruach for spirit. And um, it was into the nostrils that God breathed the neshama of life. So it's like this, this balance. It's this balance and distinguishing to be able to see left and right. Able to see things in proper balance and discernment to recognize what is physical on the left, what's spiritual on the right, and be able to discern. And discernment is very much a spiritual sense, a spiritual sensitivity. And we cannot afford to be in leadership. We cannot serve as leaders if we cannot discern. We have to be able to discern things that do not appear to the eyes. We have to be able to discern things according to their spirit. And I know sometimes people uh, would disagree with me if discipline had to be brought against a brother or a sister because they couldn't discern the, the error. They couldn't discern the damage. Another time, people would be a little upset because I tolerated certain individuals longer than they thought I should. And, um, but they couldn't discern the good. And it's a very, very uh, intangible thing, just like smell can be. Robin, bless her heart, since she had COVID back in November, she lost her sense of smell and still has not returned. And she prays every day that God would give that back to her. She never imagined how much she would miss it. And yet many people go through life without ever having spiritual discernment. And just like you can smell a carton of milk and tell if it's gone bad or not, discernment lets you tell things that look normal, but you can tell that they're not right. Something's a little hinky about this. We need discernment, especially if we're going to serve in leadership. And then enlargement, disproportionate limbs. One limb is longer than the other. One leg's longer than the other, or or one arm is lo- longer than the other. And this word, sarua, is the word there you see in Hebrew. It's only found three places in the scripture. One is right here in Leviticus 21. It's found again in Leviticus 22. 
at verse 23, where it says, you may present a bull or a lamb that has a part sarua, too long, uh, or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. And then you find it a third time over in uh, Isaiah 28.20, which says, it's referring to a bed. For the bed is too short to stretch out. And here's the verb form, sarah, uh, to stretch out on. So it's referring to the length of something. And so arms have to be the same length, legs have to be the same length, because if things are not the same length, they are out of balance. We have to have a balanced walk. You know, if you put a blindfold on, if you have a leg that's an inch or so longer than the other, and you start walking, the longer legs are going to take longer steps. You're going to wind up just going in circles, aren't you? So if we want to have a balanced walk, we have to have legs the same length. If we want to serve in leadership, we must have a balanced walk. A spiritual man is not one who ignores the physical, but he's one who's able to recognize the physical, apply God's commandments to the physical, and elevate the physical to the holy. A spiritual man enjoys all the pleasures of the physical, but he does so according to the guidelines of the Torah. And he never goes to an extreme of pursuing the physical at the expense of the spiritual or trying to pursue the spiritual by making his life in this world something unattractive. Yeshua had the spiritual and physical in perfect balance, and he was the most spiritual man ever. But even so, he had a reputation as a drunkard and a glutton. Though he was not a drunkard and was not a glutton, but he drank wine with his friends, he enjoyed good food, and so as an excuse to attack him, oh, he's, a, he's a drunkard and a glutton. He was neither of those. But he was enjoying the gifts God gave, but doing so according to the guidelines God gave. Remember, every pleasure has its origin in God. It comes from him. And it, we're told in the Psalms that at his right hand are pleasures evermore. evermore. Every pleasure comes from him. But the enemy wants us to enjoy God's pleasures in the wrong way, to the wrong degree, or at the wrong time. And when we do that, it becomes sin. And as you've heard me say so many times before, once the enemy uses a pleasure to trap us into sin, then we have an addiction, and then he eventually removes the pleasure altogether. Because the pleasure is the part that God contributed to the mix. So, if sometimes God's commandments seem a little restricting, trust me, the purpose for those restrictions is so that pleasure is maximized and not minimized. God's commandments concerning marriage is that the marriage relationship can be enjoyed to the maximum. His rules concerning food are so we can enjoy food to the maximum and to the greatest degree of health. And when it comes to the pleasure of 
wine. We follow his rules so we can enjoy wine in, uh, in the proper settings and as a celebration, but never to abuse it. Because if we abuse alcohol in any way, it will abuse you and it will damage you. So it's a matter of learning to walk in balance. Physical and the spiritual. When you walk, you walk left, right, left, right. Physical, spiritual, physical, spiritual. Then you can walk a straight line. We are human beings. We are souls. We have a body. We have a spirit. And as a soul, what we are to do is to walk according to the truths God's revealed to us through his spirit, through his word that he's spoken from the spiritual realm. And we are to make the physical submit to those rules. And when we do, we will live as a complete human being. And that's what the Torah is. It's the handbook for how to be a human being. And if we don't follow the handbook, we'll try to either be an angel or we will become an animal or worse. But we won't be a human being. All right, enough. Let's move on to the next two. The next two, a broken foot or a broken hand. I put these together because these are temporary and also they come from the same cause. What causes you to break your foot or to break your hand? It always happens because of a fall or almost always. I guess something could fall on you. But generally, uh, I, I broke my arm once when I was a kid playing football because I fell and somebody else then fell on me. But a fall, a fall will break a foot, a fall can break a hand. And um, so we need to be careful they were not people who fall because a broken foot impairs our walk, a broken hand impairs our work. And uh, again, these can heal up. These can, uh, are not permanent conditions, uh, hopefully. But we must not have impaired ability to work or an impaired ability to walk. And if we do go through something that damages us in that way, we need to step aside for leadership for a while. But the ability to walk and to work is something we need to serve through leadership. Now, this next one is a little difficult to translate, but we think it means a hunchback. The Hebrew word there is the word gibain, and uh, it only appears here in that form. But in Psalm 68.15, there's a form of this word. It says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O mountain of many Gibnon, Gibnon, many peaks, many tops, mountain of Bashan. Now, peak has this hump shape to it. And um, uh, so it's generally understood that a Gibain is someone who is a, a humpback, a hunchback. What does this mean spiritually? We are to stand tall, stand upright. I know I don't have the best posture, and uh, I have a, a wife who's, who loves me enough and humble enough to correct that, and so I'm always trying to sit up straighter. She has her work cut out for her, though. And, uh, but a humpback is one who cannot resist the downward pull of gravity. And there's a downward spiritual pull a spiritual gravity that always wants us to just to kind of give in. 
Anyone who has big muscles, they have those because they're resisting gravity. They lift heavier weights. So it's called resistance training. They're resisting the downward pull of gravity. And so a person who is strong can resist the downward pull that is always exerted on us to just give up, give in, take it easy. Don't do anything that's difficult. And, uh, and God says, no, 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 no. Don't let gravity win. Don't let the spiritual gravity of just giving into the culture, just giving into the physical, just giving up. Don't do that. Resist it. Stand strong. And a person who wants to, to serve by leading has to stand, has to resist the downward pull of the culture and of just the physical and of laziness and sloth. He has to stand. He has to resist that. We just have a few more. So we go on. The next one we come to is you can't be a dwarf. Now, it's, that's the best way we can translate it. It can also mean frail. The word there is dock. Dock. And it's a word that we've actually encountered a number of times before. Um, you find the word descri- using to describe the manna. In, uh, in Exodus 16:14, it says that when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, thin thing. That word for thin is dock. A thin thing, fine as frost on the ground. Uh, remember Joseph's dreams. He had the dream about the, the cows, the healthy ones and the ones that were dock. They were thin. And of the, the wheat, the ones that were fat and full, and then the ones that came up that were dock, they were thin. But also, over in um, um, 1 Kings 19.12, remember then Elijah fled after the showdown of the priest of Baal, he was hiding in the cave, and, and then there was an earthquake and fire and wind and and, but God was not in those things. But in verse 12, it says, And after the earthquake, a fire, but Adonai was not in the fire. After fire, the sound of a thin whisper. We're dock, thin. Something frail, something fragile, something easily ignored. So, we can't be frail. You've got to be tough. And... Um, I was sharing with a dear friend who is now in a position of leadership and he was asking advice. I said, one of the most important pieces of advice I can give you, being in leadership, I said, learn how to swallow insults like they're candy. Because anyone who steps into position is called to position of spiritual leadership, oh, the insults are going to come. The slights and the the nasty looks and the misunderstandings are to come. They're just going to come. Just learn to swallow them. Just swallow them down without batting an eyelash, without getting an emotional. You just take it. You just take it because you're not frail. And um, you can tough it out. And it's easier said than done, but it can be done. I assure you it can be done. So, in fact, what does Messiah tell us to do? He says, when rejoice, be exceedingly glad when people speak all manners of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
And uh, this is the one beatitude that is the longest. It takes two verses. He tells us to rejoice. Says, this is the way they treated the prophets. He said, I'm letting you experience what I have experienced, what all the people of God have experienced when they have stood for me. And uh, we are to rejoice. You know, a book I, <clears throat> I generally recommend, it's a short book, but it's a, it's a deep read. It's called Tomer Devara. The Palm Tree of Deborah was written hundreds of years ago, and um, it's translated into English, and there are many different editions you can get. But it, it makes this, uh, this, this wonderful insight. It says that humility is learned through suffering. And then it asks the question, if humility is learned through suffering, and not a, it, none of us want suffering, but that's how we learn humility, he asked the question, what is the best form of suffering to experience? You had to pick one kind of suffering. What would you pick? And then he answers the question says, persecution, ridicule, having things said against you that aren't true. Why is that the best form of suffering? Because it doesn't damage your health. It doesn't damage your income. And uh, it, there's all these physical things it can't do to you. It's just words. And though it can hurt so much, hurt more than physical damage, we learn not to let it hurt us, but to be strong. Not to be thin and frail, but to be strong. You just swallow the insults like candy and you rejoice, provided the suffering and the insults are coming because you're doing things right, not because you're doing things wrong. It's, it's like that old saying, if one person calls you a donkey, ignore them. If two people call you a donkey, think about it. If three people call you a donkey, buy a saddle. So you have to make sure that when you're being called names, you need to measure, make sure, does this apply to me? Be humble and, and learn from it. But if it doesn't, then ignore it. Keep going. Don't waste your life on earth defending yourself. Just keep walking. Be tough. Don't be frail. The next one, crossed eyes. And uh, this is tebalul be'eno. Eno is the word for I, ain. But uh, this comes from the word balal, which means to be confused. So confused eyes, and we, we tend to think about this as crossed eyes. Some have suggested it might mean cataracts. But that would go more towards blindness, which is number one on the list. The crossed eyes. People with crossed eyes can see, but they don't see accurately. And it's possible to have spiritual vision, but not to have good spiritual vision. And when you have crossed eyes, you see two of everything. You're not seeing things distinctly, and you're not seeing things with depth. Your eyes don't see the same, but they should see together. And people who have good eyesight in both eyes, they, get, they have better depth perception. They can tell distance. But people who can only see off one eye don't have that depth perception. It takes two eyes to, to uh, triangulate and see how far away something is. People with crossed eyes, though, see in a confused way. And I've met people who have spiritual perceptions and aptitudes, but they're very confused. They're very confused. They, they have not trained themselves, or something's wrong, to 
where they can't really interact with the spiritual in a reliable and accurate way. So, if we're seeing things spiritually but in a confused way, we need some corrective lenses. We need to ask God to help us to see things more precisely. Now, the next two I put together, because both of these are also temporary things, and they're things on the skin. We have the one that's gerev, which is eczema, garav, and the other is yalefet, yalefet. And these really refer to scabs. Eczema is a disease that can be cleared up over time. And scabs are damaged. They're scars. That eczema is from a disease, but a scab is from a mishap that is healing. And so when we have these kinds of things happening, give them time. Sometimes we get ill. When we're ill, we need to take time to heal up. Sometimes we get wounded. And if a wound is something that's severe enough to show, we need to take time off. We need to take time and and heal. And I'm speaking spiritually. If you're spiritually wounded, take a break, but then get over it. And if you're spiritually ill, take a break. Do what's necessary to recover from that, get over it, and get back into the game. But a person who's spiritually ill or spiritually wounded, they need to take a break from leadership. Um, So, these are the blemishes that are temporary, they're surface, but still there are times we just need to take a rest, take a break. And then the last one, crushed testicles. And this is pretty obvious what this refers to. This is someone who's not fruitful. And I know of people who have served and led and done things for years and years and years. There's just no good fruit. They're like artificial fruit. They look great, but there's nothing life-giving within. And um, these are the people who are spiritually sterile. They're not bad people, but there's just something missing there. They have all the form. But the life isn't there. And uh, and, and they're not reproducing spiritually. They're not making disciples. So this kind of person should not be in spiritual leadership. They can't really lead and serve by leading. So here's a quick review. Here's a summary. A priest must not live according to his feelings. He must be able to stand and walk without stumbling. He must be able to discuss Discern between spiritual and physical, must maintain balance between the two, must be reliable in his walk and in his work. He must resist the downward pull of the culture. He must be mature and of full stature. He must have unimpaired vision to see things in the light of truth. He must be spiritually whole in his heart and in his deeds. He must be fruitful. It's a tall order, but... Spiritual leadership is a tall order. And so for fathers, for those who teach discipleship classes and Bible studies, for anyone who finds himself position of elder or pastor, whatever your realm of spiritual leadership may be, take this as a a list of things that you need to focus on and improve. And... um, 
But may I suggest that you not hold off your service until you're perfect in all of these. You may never be perfect. It's a very tall order. But can you be shooting for perfection, aiming for it, working towards that? And uh, I think you know what I mean. Don't use these as an excuse for not serving. But if there's one of them that really does pierce your heart and you're convicted about, then maybe you need to take a break to work on that before you step back into a place of serving by leading. Okay? So exercise discernment and spiritual sensitivity as you go over these and think about them. All right, well, let's move on. Time is running off without me. Uh, chapter 23. Now, chapter 23 goes through the Moabdim, the Moabdim, the appointed times. Now, an interesting thing I want to point out, it's something I'm still studying on. Uh, rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's just one of my favorite uh, teachers and rabbis, unfortunately, he passed away just recently. But he talks about this chapter, and in verse 1 it says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, Adonai, Adonai's Moedim, appointed times, uh, that you are to designate as holy convocations. Uh, a holy convocation, Hebrews, a mikra kadosh. These are my Moedim. Then look what it says, verse 3. For six days labor may be done, the seventh day is a day of complete rest. A mikra kadosh, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath for Adonai in all your dwelling places. Now this is the only list of the Moedim where the Sabbath is mentioned. And so Rabbi Sachs brings up what the rabbis have also always said about this verse. They say, oh wait a minute, stop a big second. The Sabbath is neither a moed nor holy convocation. Here it says it is, but they say, but technically it isn't. Because the way a moed is defined at a point in time is that you can look at your calendar and say, now that date is an appointed time, that date is an appointed time, this date. You were given a month and a day. Shavuot's an exception because it's connected to Passover. You start with Passover, count 49 days, next day is, the, is Shavuot. But Sabbath isn't one of those. It just comes every seventh day. It's not one that has a month and a day signed, assigned to it. So the rabbis say, technically, it's not a moed. It's in a different category. And they ask, well, why does Moses call it a moed here? And then a holy convocation. According to the Torah, and according to the definition that has been universally understood for a mikra kodesh, are the three pilgrimage feasts, Passover, Shavuot, and um, uh, Tabernacles, um, Sukkot. These are the three Mikra Kadosh, where the males from Israel all come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to observe this day. But we don't go to the temple every Sabbath. They never did. So the question comes back, why is Moses calling the Sabbath a moed, and a mikra kadosh, a, um, a uh, holy convocation. And then Rabbi Sachs gets into this, and other rabbis discuss it as well. But what they say is, is basically the moedim 
and the holy convocations are all expressions that give insight that crack open to show us what occurs in every Shabbat to some, in some degree or other. And that all of these are somehow an expression of Shabbat, although Shabbat is not distinctly one of these. It's just something to think about. It's something I'm puzzling over, and I invite you to puzzle over it as well. But the thing I want us to look at here is as you're going through the Moedim, uh, in verse 4, you come to Passover. And of course, that's the week of unleavened bread. And, and then you count the Omer, starting in verse 9. And it talks about the Omer count and Shavuot, Pentecost, which is coming up here just in a few weeks, in verse 15. And then you come to verse 22, which seems to have nothing to do with the Moedim. Up to verse 22, you have the spring Moedim. Then starting in verse 23, you have the fall Moedim. You have Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, and you have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and you have Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's verse 22 doing just hanging out here? Let's take a look at it. This is what it says. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Adonai, your God. What's going on? Well, let's take a spiritual approach to this and a prophetic approach to this. We know that when Messiah came, he was crucified on Passover to remove our sins because Passover begins the week of unleavened bread. Leaven is taken away. Leaven is a picture of sin, always is. He rose from the dead on the third day, which is the beginning of the barley harvest. It's the day of first fruits. And then as you count the Omer on up to Shavuot, or Pentecost, we all know what happened there in Acts chapter 2, uh, 50 days after Passover. That is when normally Israel all comes to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But what happened? God renewed his covenant, and he wrote the Torah on human hearts, and the flames came down on the apostles' heads, and they all spoke in languages everyone could understand. And what you have is a, a repeat of what took place at Mount Sinai thousands of years earlier. But this time it's more intimate, <clears throat> more personal, more immediate. And it's like God said, instead of writing my Torah on stone, putting on human hearts. This is the renewal of the covenant that I promised back in Jeremiah 31. So the spring feast, the spring Moedim, we see something significant happening that first year when Yeshua was crucified and then ascended. And can't you imagine that uh, the apostles are all very excited for Rosh Hashanah to roll around. What's God going to do in Rosh Hashanah? Maybe this is the day that Messiah returns, but nothing happened. And nothing happened on the fall feast the next year, the year, the year after that, and after that. And it would seem that when Messiah returns, and there's the trumpet of God, the shofar of God is blown, and then the judgment comes, which is a, what Yom Kippur pictures. And then there's the kingdom that arrives, which is pictured by Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
it seems the fall feasts all point to his second advent, to his return. So the spring feasts were fulfilled at his first coming. The fall feasts will be fulfilled at his return. And in between those, we have verse 22. It's about harvest. It's about reaping. And these 2,000 years between Messiah's first advent and his return is a time of harvest, a time of reaping. And what I draw out of this is that there are three groups of people. We have the workers, because it says, when you reap the harvest, these are the people who have plowed the soil and they have sown the soil, they are harvesting the crops. These are the workers. These are the ones who are invested in doing the work. But it says that when you harvest, you leave the corners, the peyote of the field should, be, should not be harvested. Another place talks about when you drop a cluster of grapes or you drop um, some grain. Don't bend over to pick it up. Just leave it there. And it shall, you shall leave it for the poor. And for the sojourner, the one who's just passing through. So we see that we have the workers, we have the poor, and we have the sojourners. And I know in my years of leading Beth Takun, we've had the workers, the people who are invested in the community, rolling up their sleeves, doing the work. And I tell you, what a great, great congregation. What a congregation of workers and volunteers. Uh, you, it's like you just think of what needs to be done and people are showing up to do it. It's been amazing. But there are people who are just, for whatever reason, they're, they're spiritually poor. They're poor in their souls. They're just unable to do the work. And I think God is telling us here, you bless them anyway. And if they can't do the work, and they're not invested in the work for whatever reason, and maybe they're just not workers yet, You be gracious to them. You make sure they're fed. You leave plenty for them. You take care of them. And then there's some people just pass through. Over the years, we've had people who've come and stayed for a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year or two, and then they move on to something else. And I've always said that the doors of Beth Takun are open for you to come in. And if you want to stay, wonderful. God bless you. If it's for a while, for a season where you need to rest, you need to be fed, you just need to kick back and take some things in, God bless you. We're not going to hold on to you. Um, and if you need to move on, God lead you someplace else to a different work. We're, we're glad we were here to be of assistance. And we've had many of those that we've stayed friends with over the years. So we want to be careful. We don't just say, well, what we do here is just for the workers but not for the poor and the people passing through. We want people invested and committed. Of course we want people invested and committed. But God cares about all three groups. And uh, so any of you who oversee uh, communities, faith communities, you're a pastor, a rabbi, or small group leader, or whatever, I hope you keep this in mind. And um, take care of the poor. Take care of the people just passing through. You love on them anyway. And you feed them and bless them anyway. Leviticus 25. We're going to close with this. And there's a, a much here that you can read. 
But Leviticus 25 talks about the Shemitah year. The word Shemitah, I'm not sure that's even used in the text, but it's come to be known as the Shemitah year. Shemitah is the Hebrew word for release. And God gave a commandment that you sow and harvest your land six years, but on the seventh year, that is the Sabbath year. You don't sow, you don't harvest. Just eat whatever comes. You don't go and gather the harvest into your barns. And whatever grows up there is just for people to eat, for the owner, for the people passing through. It's just for everybody. But you don't harvest it and take it into your barns. You just leave it and let the land rest every seventh year. And it also talks about the Yovel year, where we get the word Jubilee from the word Yovel. And the Jubilee came every seven sevens. So after 49 years, you would then have a... Uh, a Yovel year where uh, all kinds of things were released. Uh, servant slaves were released, property returned to its original owner, and so on and so forth. The land would rest. And as you read through the passages, and there's the passage about leaving the land to lie fallow, and God's warning. If you skip ahead to 2643, he says, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. He's saying, if you don't keep my Shemitah years, you don't let the land rest, I'll drive you out of the land so the land gets to rest on its own, even if I have to take you off of it to give the land its rest. And sure enough, this is what happened. And you can read about it more in Jeremiah 25, 8 to 11, and Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. Um, and the passages that are on. sake of time, we're not going to get into those. But we know what happened. The Shemitah years came and went, and Israel continued to work the land and harvest it and gather it into their barns. They did not observe God's seventh year of rest. And I want you to think about what probably went through their minds. You know, they work the land, they harvest for six years, the seventh year comes around and Ooh, this is a Shemitah year. Can we really trust God? Can we really trust him to provide enough food if we're not working and sowing and harvesting and all that? I think we just, we've just got to work it anyway. Let's just sow the land and plow and sow and, and harvest it anyway. And so the seventh year comes and goes. They had a good harvest, and they think, oh, well, there are no consequences. That worked out all right. God blessed us. Seven years later, the next Shemitah year rolls around. They do the same thing, and they say, oh, God blessed us. Nothing bad happened. And then this happens again and again and again and again for 490 years, which means they owe God 70 Shemitah years. And that's exactly what God got. He brought in Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonians, he took Israel captive, and he tells us in Jeremiah that the land will lie fallow for 70 years so that it gets its Shemitah years that the people of Israel never gave. And this makes me wonder, what are the things in my life that I just kind of overlook, the things I know God's told me to do, I think, ah, I'm just not going to do that, and then I don't do it, and I get away with it. God blesses me anyway. It's all good. It's all cool. It's no big deal. 
what are the things that I'm saving up for later where God says, you know all those times I asked you to do something, I commanded you to do something, and you just thought, no, I'm going to do it my own way? Well, today the bill has come due. Now that should send chills down our spines. Because what are the things that you know God wants you to do, and you've been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. The bill's going to come due. And you may be thinking, well, God's been blessing me, but we must understand that God's blessing is not always a sign of his favor. It can be a sign of his patience, a sign of his goodness towards us but not necessarily that he likes us or likes what we're doing. God's gracious to all. God's good to all. But he also has expectations of us. So I just challenge all of you who are hearing this teaching, including myself, what are the things we've been putting off and think we're getting away with it? It must not be a big deal to God in God's eyes. He hasn't spanked me for it, so I must, it must be okay. What are those things? And there's something in your heart, something in your conscience that's making you uncomfortable right now. May I suggest you go and take care of that and not tempt God and uh, not put his, his patience to the test, but deal with it. All right, discussion questions. Number one, discuss the dangers of a close association with a reprobate. How have you been influenced by such associations? And if it's appropriate, you might want to share your experience. Uh, This is a case where God said, you separate from that person and you didn't. Okay, what were the repercussions? Or what were the blessings when you did disassociate with that person? Number two, review the physical disqualifications for a priest. So that took up the lion's share of this teaching this week. Which of these represent areas of your own life or what you need to do repair? And again, share if appropriate. Review the three groups in 23-22. To which group do you belong? You need to change groups. And then number four, considering the discussion of Shemitah years, which is way too brief. I hope you go back and read the passages and fill in all the gaps. Is God's blessing always a sign of God's favor? So uh, I hope you uh, have a meaningful discussion on these four questions and think deeply on them. Amazing passage of Torah in this week's two Torah portions. So God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the light of your Torah. Thank you so much for the truth that is always there waiting for us. Thank you that your Torah is alive. And Lord, I pray that it would do its internal work in each of our souls, our spirits. It would change our minds. It would change our behaviors. That it would bring healing to the spiritual blemishes that we've just tolerated for way too long. May it bring healing to us so we can stand strong. We can walk in balance. We can see clearly and become the godly servant leaders that you wish us to be. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it all in Yeshua's name. Amen.